This recording is a production of Faith Builders Educational Programs. This presentation was recorded at REACH 2015, a conservative Anabaptist ministry convention hosted by Faith Builders on March 19 and 20, 2015. Thank you. Someone has said that there are two very important days in your life. The first one is the day you were born. The second one is the day you figure out why you were born. And uh, many of us uh, struggle with that second one, figuring out why. Uh, there are many people who spend their lives looking for meaning in life and looking for the answer to that question, why was I born? Why am I here? What does God want the result to be from my life? When I reach the end of my life, am I going to be able to say that I've done what God wanted me to do? And so we're going to talk today about how you go about looking for that purpose in life and making plans that are actually going to help you to get to where, get the things accomplished that God wants you to do. I had a friend that uh, a number of years ago I was at his house and his uh, goal in life was to be able to retire when he was 40. Uh, he had started out uh, with uh, uh, living in a duplex right after he got married. He and his wife lived in one side. They rented out the other side and when he had that paid for, then he moved out of the duplex into another house, rented out both sides, and then he bought another house, and then he was adding, as each one got paid for, he had another one, and so I was visiting him when he was in his 30s, and he had over 100 apartments that he was uh, renting out, and he, uh, and I was there, and he was like, you know, we're like, I, I just, I'd love to stay in this chair, but I got to go to work, and it was Saturday afternoon, and I'm like, well, what do you need to go to work for? And he said, because... Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work 80 hours a week until I'm 40, and then I will have worked as many hours in my life as most people work in their whole lifetime, and then I'm going to be able to retire, quit, I'll never work another day in my life. And I said, well, you've got to realize you don't work 80 hours a week from age 20 to 40 and then go from 80 to zero. Like, that's not going to work. Uh, you're going you're gonna to go crazy if you do that. And it didn't work out too well for him. But that was his motive. That's what he was working toward so that when he was 40, he'd be able to quit and never work again. I was traveling um, a number of years ago. I was on an airplane going from Thunder Bay to Toronto, <clears throat> and um, a man sitting next to me slept most of the way, but just before we got to Toronto, he woke up and we started talking, and, and he was on his way to uh, Fort McMurray in northwestern Alberta to work in the oil fields there. And he was telling me that he lives in Thunder Bay, and he goes up there, and he works for uh, three weeks at a time, and then he comes home for a week, and then he goes back, and he works three more weeks. And so every month, he's up there for three weeks. So he makes 12 trips a year from Thunder Bay to Fort McMurray and works in the oil fields. He was telling me how much money he makes in three weeks on the oil fields. He was saying, I can work all the overtime I want. And so I forget exactly what he was making, but it was something like sixteen or $20,000 in a three-week period that he was earning in the oil fields. And so I was saying, all right, so you multiply that by 12, like that's a lot of money in a year's time. So what are you doing with all your money? And he said, well, I'm saving it because I'm going to do this for uh, three more years and then I'm going to quit and I'm going to retire and I'm never going to work another day in my life. And I said, well, how old are you? How old are you going to be when you retire? He said, I'm going to be 52. And so I said, well, that's, that's, it. that's pretty young to retire. Like, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And he said, um, well, I'm going to get on my motorcycle and ride around North America and chase women. I said, well, I guess that's one way to spend retirement. And then we talked some more. And, and then uh, he turned to me after a while and he said, so what do you do in Sulukau? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. 
And all of a sudden, it got real quiet. <laughs> and I could, see, I could see the wheels turning, like, what all did I just say to this guy? And, and uh, so he starts stuttering around. And eventually, he said, well, I certainly believe there's somebody up there. And, and he said, you know, I used to be addicted to drugs and alcohol. And I went to AA, and they told me you have to believe in a higher power. And I know somebody up there helped me because I couldn't have got off of drugs and alcohol myself. And so I know somebody did that for me. And I said, well, that's good. You know, there must be other guys in the oil fields that are struggling with drugs and alcohol. And so you know that happened to you, and God helped you with that, you can probably tell other people that there's somebody up there who can help them with their problems. Yeah, he said, I could do that. And then I was talking to him about some of the things that I am involved in uh, overseas and in the community there in Sulukout. And, and uh, so he was, we were talking about that. And then just as we were getting ready to get off the plane, <clears throat> I said to him, you know, my, uh, my plan is that I want to live my life in such a way that when I'm done, when my life is finished, that there are people in the world whose lives are better because of the way I chose to live my life. That's what I want to be the end result of my life. And he kind of looked at me and he said, I, I think I know what you're trying to say. And I said, yeah, I think too you do. And we, we parted ways. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, we think about what does God want me to do? Um, what really, why was, what am I doing here? Uh, why was I born? And why was I born now? Uh, what really is going to be, um, uh, and, and when we look at a destination for life, we think about, uh, why am I doing what I'm doing? Because it's not enough just to do something, just to be occupied, and just to be busy. Um, I was uh, at uh, church uh, in the fall of last year, and um, the pastor said, I want to introduce you to this man. I want to just want to see what you say to him. And so we talked a little bit, and I asked him what he does, and he was telling me what he works, and I was saying, so how do you like that? Like, what you, he said, I hate it. He said, I hate every day of it. And he was saying, I can't, I've, I've, I've been doing it, he'd been doing it for like 25 years. He'd been doing his job for 25 years. He said, I've hated every day of it. I've never, never wanted to go to work any day of the That's a long time to do something you don't really enjoy doing. And I asked him, well, why do you do it? Well, I don't know what else to do. Uh, well, that's no way to live life. Like, if you don't find something in life that really motivates you and that you're excited about, it's going to be a long life. It's going it's to be a long time until you get to die. But if you do something that you're really excited about, you do something that really motivates you, the next thing you know, you're going to be an old guy like me. And you're going to say, what happened? How did I get, how did I get this old so quickly? And that's the, that's the exciting thing about life. We ask ourselves, how am I going to live my life? What's going to be kind of the central themes of my life? What's my life going to revolve around? What are going to be the important things? And ultimately, what might God want me to do? Because you see, the Bible tells us in Psalm 139 that when we were in our mother's womb, God formed us. And the word picture there is of a woman knitting a garment. So it's kind of like God's looking at thinking about you and it says, before you were born, all your days were already written in his book. So he's already planning your life. He's looking at what he wants you to do. He had you. He chose your nationality. He chose the year of your birth. You, he could have had you been born a thousand years ago, but he chose this time for you to be born. He chose your family. He chose the church community that you were going to be born into. He gave you a personality. He gave you, he decided whether you were going to be male or female. He gave you uh, natural gifts and abilities. 
So God's thinking before you're born, he's putting you together in your mother's womb, and, and he's thinking about your life, and he's thinking about all the things that you're going to need and that are going to be helpful to you in doing what he wants you to do in your lifetime. And so the day you were born, your parents were really excited, but God was like, yes, it's a girl. It's just what I wanted. And he was so excited about you being, you're here. And, and the world is, is ready for you to do the things that he had you born to be and born to do. But we all search for, for meaning in life. Uh, Victor Frankl in his great book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, says that in a statistical survey of 7,900 students at 48 colleges, uh, in a preliminary report, they asked what was considered to be very important to them now. 16% of the students said making a lot of money. 78% said their first goal was finding a purpose and meaning to life. It's far more important to find a purpose and meaning in life than it is to find a way to make uh, a lot of money. Another thing he says in that book is that no instinct tells man, he's talking about him, no instinct tells him what he has to do, and no tradition tells him what he ought to do. Sometimes he doesn't even know what he wishes to do. Instead, he either wishes to do what other people do, which is conformism, or he does what other people tell him to do, which is totalitarianism. A statistical survey recently revealed that among European students, 25% showed a more or less marked degree of existential vacuum, which means they didn't know what they wanted to do. They, they had no clue what, what the meaning of life really was. Among American students, it wasn't 25%, but, 65, but 60%. The existential vacuum manifests itself mainly in a state of boredom. That's why so many people are looking for adventure. They're looking for excitement because they're bored. They really don't know what to do with their lives. They have this whole lifetime on their hands. They really feel like there's no meaning to it anyway. We just live and then we die. And the whole thing of evolution and all that has kind of fed into the thinking that we're just a biological uh, uh, something here that was born in this whole sequence of the life and death and we're here and we fade off the scene and there's really no purpose and no meaning and so what are you going to do? It doesn't matter what you do. If there is no God, if there is no accountability to a higher being, if there is no eternal life, if you just live and then you die and you're buried and that's it, well then you might as well just go crazy and at least have fun, right? At least do something exciting with your life. And so the existential vacuum winds up with boredom. And that's why there are so many people in our world today who are looking for adventure. They're looking for things to give them excitement. And there are many people who are doing things for adventure and they're, they're, doing, they're, they're finding pseudo thrills in pseudo adventure because they're not involved in real adventure, real things that have significance and meaning. They're doing things that give a thrill. They're going to the top of, of a mountain and they're strapping boards on their feet and throwing themselves off of a cliff and then partway down you think, I'm gonna die, and then you get to the bottom and you're, oh, that was great, like I'm gonna go up and, and then you need a bigger hill because now you, when you're halfway down you don't think you're gonna die anymore because you know how to do it, right? And so now you need a bigger hill so that when you're partway down you think you're gonna die and then, and then it, it eventually you just, but it's just a continual pursuit of thrills because what, what else is there to life? Or, or you ride bulls or you, I don't know, you, do, you can do all kinds of things to get a thrill, but it's a temporary thrill, and you always need something bigger and greater 
because it doesn't last. It's just for the, that moment and then it goes away. And I'm not against sports. I'm not against excitement. I'm not against any of that stuff. I'm just saying that's all short term and that's all insignificant because there are real thrills in life that come from being involved in real adventure. And real adventure comes from walking with God. And if you say yes to God, God's going to take you some places where you think you're going to die. And you think this is really, like, this is frightening. And why is it that we will take ourselves to the top of a cliff and throw ourselves off on a couple of boards to give ourselves a thrill to make ourselves think we're going to die, but then we have an opportunity to do something significant for God, and we say, I'm too scared. I could never do that. What's that about? That's where real adventure is. And if you want to find real adventure, then you have to get a real thrill, then you have to get involved in the real adventure that really has significance for eternity. And if you don't think it is true, I'll take you a few places where you, I'll take you with me and you, you might think you're going to die, but you won't and you'll, you'll be okay, but it's exciting. And I've done ministry many times where going into it, I thought, why am I doing this? Like, I don't want, this is, this is, I'm way out of my comfort zone here. And then when it's done, it's kind of like, that was really great. Like, God did some amazing things and I got to watch God do something. That's really, like, that's amazing. And that's where you get real, that's where real power is. And that's where real thrills uh, come from. Uh, I remember, just like Wayne was saying last night, one of the greatest thrills is to see the transformation that happens in people's lives when they come into a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, if you want to have real adventure, then uh, you see people's lives changed and you see the person who used to be an alcoholic who now is delivered from alcohol. You see the person who came from a broken family and uh, didn't really know how family life worked and they grow, up, they grow up in a broken home and they grow up with all the hurts of abuse and all those things and then God brings restora restoration and healing into their lives. They're able to function as a person and care for a family and, and do for their children what hadn't been done for them. That's, that's where real adventure is. That's what's really significant. I remember uh, probably um, 15 years ago now I went to uh, Haiti one time, and um, I, when I got there, the day I got there, there was a widow lady in that community who had five children. One of her daughters had had typhoid, and as a result of having typhoid, she had uh, had constipation, and then she got a blockage in her bowel, and she got very, very sick, and she had lost a lot of weight from having typhoid, and then she lost even more weight from this blockage of her bowel, and so she was very, very sick and very, very uh, thin. Her elbows were bigger than her arms above or below her elbows, and her knees were bigger than her legs above or below her knees. And I went to her, uh, and anyway, she had gone for surgery for this bowel blockage. She went to a good hospital, good doctor, good surgeon, and um, they did the surgery, got everything fixed up, and they told her, now, when you sit up, don't sit straight up. So go over on your side, roll over on your side, and then sit up sideways. Well, I don't think she really understood what they were saying. And a day or so after the surgery, she sat straight up, and she burst the incision. And the doctor said, she's so skinny, there's so little to work with, I can't fix it. There's nothing I can do. And so he sent her home. So I got there the day she came home, and I went over to the house, her mother's house, to see her. And there in the back bedroom was that little girl laying on a bed, about nine years old. And she was just all curled up in a fetal position. And her mother was fanning the flies off of her. And she looked like she could die in the next 10 minutes. And um, I asked the pastor, why did they send her home? 
And he said, they sent her home because she's going to die. And they didn't want her to die at the hospital because then the family will blame the hospital. So they sent her home so that she dies at home and the family doesn't blame the hospital. So I said, that's not right. Like, she shouldn't die. Uh, that can be fixed. I know it can be fixed. And he said, well, if that doctor couldn't fix it, there's no doctor in Haiti that can fix it. So it can't be done. It's all right, we'll take her somewhere else then. I'll take her to the States or Canada. I'll get her somewhere because I know that can be fixed. She should not die. I will get her out of this country and I'll get it fixed. And he said, you can't. I said, don't tell me I can't. Uh, we can do it. No, he said, you can't. I said, why not? He said, well, first of all, she doesn't have a passport. Secondly, her mother's illiterate. Her mother probably never registered her birth. So you're going to have to go through all the hoops to get her birth registered before you can ever get a passport. And before you get all that paperwork done, she's going to be dead. So you can't do it. So Ricky Wright was with me. I said, right, Ricky? We'd do it, but we can't. But uh, we're going to pray for her, and God can heal her. And so Ricky and I prayed for her, and uh, we said, God, like you say, you're the husband to the widow and a father to the fatherless. And uh, here's this widow lady and her daughter, and we would take her somewhere if we could, but it's too complicated. But you can heal her. She should not die. And uh, so the pastor said, well, I'll make sure she doesn't die a painful death, and I'll kind of take care of her. So he would go every day and change the dressing uh, on her incision and and by the time I left, she was still alive, and, and I call the pastor every couple of weeks, and, and she's still living. And you know, after a month or so, skin grew over that incision, and that thing healed up. And today, she's a vivacious, young, married woman in her 20s, and she's just uh, serving the Lord, and, and, and God spared her life. And I got to watch. I got to be there when, uh, when God did that. That's, that's real adventure. Uh, probably four years ago, I went with Raymond Burkholder to Myanmar. We went down to the Irrawaddy Delta, an amazing trip. We, we, uh, uh, they said, we're going to go down there on the overnight bus. So uh, we got on the overnight bus. They said, it's going to be about uh, seven or eight hours. So we got on the bus, and we got on this bus, and we counted the seats. And if you put two people in each seat, there was room for 48 people. When the bus actually left, we counted how many people were on. There were 72 people on the bus. It was so full that when the, we stopped at a stop and the driver said, okay, we're ready to go, everybody went and got on the bus, and the driver was the last one to come. And he crawled in through the window on the driver's side because that was easier than getting everybody to move so that it was standing in front of the seat so you get to the driver's seat. So we got down and we went an hour or two, and then, or a couple hours, and then we stopped about 11 o'clock at night. And, um, and then they said, now the road's not so good, so the bus can't go. And so he said, all right, what are we going to do? Well, we'll get a truck. So this truck came, a straight truck, and they put all the luggage up on top, and then they put the people in the back. And, and Raymond and I got to ride in the front because we were old guys. And so then we went for an hour in this truck. And uh, then we got another bus, and we went down. Finally, about uh, 9 o'clock in the morning, we got down to this town that we were going to get a boat from to go out to the island. And uh, they said, okay, you can take a bit of a rest here, and, and then we're going to have lunch, and then we're going to get on the boat. So we said, all right, how long is the boat ride? They said, oh, it's about uh, three hours. So we said, all right, so we rested a little bit. We had lunch. We got on the boat, and it was uh, one of the long-tail boats, like a little low boat that went down in the middle, had a, a, a diesel engine on the back with a propeller that was out on like 20 feet out the back they could tilt that thing down and and they had two guys running that thing so we went down the river and and when we got out to the ocean um there was uh the waves were really big and they weren't breaking but they were just rolling and they were like three four feet high and we're in this little boat just kind of over these waves and and then the waves were from the wrong direction so we had a detour around rather than going to the island and and so it took us five hours to get to the island and and then uh, we finally got to the island 
And so then it was like five o'clock at night and, and, and then we had supper and then they said, we might have church tonight. And so we said, okay. And so about seven o'clock, Raymond said, oh, I think we're going to bed. I said, I'm going to wait. Like they might have church. And about 7.30 they came and said, okay, we're ready for church. So we went to the church and they said, okay, we got two guys. Like we're, we're, we're going to have church here. Uh, we want you to preach. We said, how long? They said, oh, about an hour. And we said, all right, that's an hour. So 30 minutes each. And they said, no, no, an hour each. And we said, it's eight o'clock at night now. And they said, what does that have to do with anything? So we each preached an hour and then we went back to bed and we were staying at Deacon's house. And then the next day we were, um, we were going to have a conference there, but the, but the police said no. So they said, all right, instead of having a conference, we're going to go around to people's houses and they can invite in their neighbors. So Raymond took one interpreter, I took another one, and we went around, we got to the first house, and we sang some songs, and then the interpreter said after the one song, he said to me, okay, now this guy here, he doesn't think you can trust God, so here you need to preach about faith. And so we sang one more song, and then I was preaching about faith. And then we went to the next house, and we sang some songs, and then my interpreter said to me after some songs, okay, this guy here, he just became a Christian three months ago. His wife's been a Christian for a long time, but he used to get really angry at her, and he used to beat her, but now he knows as a Christian husband he shouldn't do that, but he still gets really angry at her, and he doesn't know what to do with his anger as a Christian husband. So here you need to preach about how a Christian husband should treat his wife. And so one more song, and I'm preaching about marriage and how a Christian husband should treat his wife. So we did that all day long. We went around we did the whole village, and we did services. So we did that for a couple days. And then we were getting ready to go. And the last night we were there and we, went to the, we were at the deacon's house for supper. And, and these people lived on an island. The whole thing was like six feet above sea level. And everybody had shrimp ponds in their backyard and, and they were fishing. And so I love seafood. I was almost sick after four or five days there from eating seafood because it was all so good. And, and then the last evening we were there and the deacon's wife said, we feel really bad because we're just feeding you our ordinary food that we have growing in our backyards and we haven't given you any special food. So tonight we're having a special dinner. We said, really, what are we having? And she said, well, we killed a dog and we're having dog curry. And so we had dog curry and it didn't taste like chicken. Uh, I promise you it, it didn't taste like chicken. But, uh, but one of the exciting things about that time on that island was that after one of those days of going around and doing services in the houses, there was a young man who was at one of those services who was raised in a Buddhist family who came over to the house afterwards and said, I listened to what you men were saying about the Lord Jesus and I, I want to believe, but I'm afraid of what my family might say. And that young man wound up coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and giving his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's where real adventure is found. That's where you're doing something that has meaning for the kingdom of God. Victor Frankl also says, the more one forgets himself by giving himself to a cause to serve another person or to love, the more human he is and the more he actualizes himself. What is called self-actualization is not attainable at all for the simple reason the more the one would strive for it, the more he would miss it. In other words, self-actualization is possible only as a side effect of self-transcendence. So what he's saying is if you're going to live for self, you're never going to find meaning. It's only when you live for something other than self that you actually find fulfillment. And you know, the world is full of people who have been pursuing their dreams and pursuing their visions, and they're 35 or 40 years old, and they've accomplished everything they set out to accomplish, and they don't know what to do with the rest of their life, and they're disillusioned, and they're discouraged and depressed because what they were seeking didn't really happen. If you are going to live a life that's going to be effective and is going to be focused and is going to be meaningful, it's going to be because you intentionally sought for what does God want me to do and you invest your life in things that have meaning for eternity 
and things that have meaning for the kingdom of God and that may have no significance for yourself personally, but they're going to benefit somebody else or they're going to have a tremendous benefit for eternity because reality is we are just practicing for eternity. We're just preparing for eternity. The real significant things are the things that are eternal. And so anything we invest in what's only temporary really loses significance and meaning. And if you're going to invest in eternal things, you're going to have to plan. You're going to have to do it intentionally and be purposeful about doing it. So I believe that one of the things that can be very helpful for you is to develop a personal mission statement. Almost every organization today has uh, a mission statement. Uh, If you work for a company, they probably have a mission statement. Why do we exist? Uh, What do we do? Well, you can write a personal mission statement for yourself. You can decide, you can look at, ask, seek God for direction in why do I exist. Here's some steps in doing that. Uh, Schedule a block of time when you're not going to have a lot of distractions, when you can really focus on it. And then here's a list of questions which you have there. Um, how would I like friends and family members to describe me? If I, if, if I was thinking about, okay, now I'm at the end of my life and I'm sitting at my funeral. Uh, well, I wouldn't be sitting at my funeral. I'd be laying down, right? But I, okay, I'm at my funeral. Uh, how, would I, how would I want people to describe me? What would I want them to say uh, about me? And because that's not going to happen by accident. You are living day by day. You are building the, the characteristics, you are building the, the events that people are going to remember about you when your life is finished. What's the most significant contribution that I could probably may possibly make to my world with the gifts that God has given me? What am I good at? What do I enjoy doing? Now, sometimes we look at the will of God and we have this weird feeling that if I'm good at something or I really enjoy doing it, then God's not going to let me do that. But if I ever say, I'm never doing that, then somehow God's listening for that and he's going to say, all right, uh, you said one time that you would never live in a city. So that you're, you're going to the city because you said you're never going to do that. I'm going to make you do that. And that somehow God is just out to spoil your fun. And he's just out to, he's going to make you do the thing that you said you'd never do. Now, it is true that sometimes we think we'd never do something and God makes us willing to do it. And he helps us to see that actually we can really find fulfillment in that. But God didn't give you gifts so, so that he couldn't use them. God gave you gifts and interests and abilities because he wants to use them. And he wants you to find, he gave you, he made you the way you are so that he could use you. And so uh, look at the gifts that God has given you. What character traits do I genuinely value and would like to see modeled in my life? Um, who are my role models? Uh, who are people that I admire? Who are people that I say, you know, that's, what, that's who I'd like to be like. When I'm their age, I'd like to be that kind of a person. Who has the character qualities and, and characteristics that you, would, that you really admire? And then how can I develop that in, uh, in my own life? And then uh, in the next three to five years, in what ways would I hope to mature in my relationship with God, family, friends, work associates, and community? What are areas that I need to grow in? What are things that I could do in the next, uh, the next three to five years? How can I, how can I change? What will be the center of my life? What am I really going to live for? What's going to be the central focus of my life? What is going to be the theme that drives, uh, that drives my life? What will be the character of my life? What kind of person will I be? And this isn't about what, what I'm going to do. It's who I'm going to be. 
Because you see, sometimes when we come to the will of God and we look at what does God want to do with my life, we're asking Him to answer all the questions about what and where and all that, where God is looking at the questions of why and, and, and who, who are you going to be? Because really, God's uh, interested in our development and God's interested in our growth and our maturity. And He, he takes us through experiences in life for that purpose. And then what will be the contributions of my life? Who do I have a desire to help most? Do I have a, an attraction to people in poverty? Do I have an attraction to elderly people? Do I have an attraction to children? Who do I really like to, what really make, what really motivates me? What are the things that I really, people that I really connect well with? And what will be the communication of my life? How will I share from my life to others? In what ways can I give? Is it going to be in teaching? Is it going to be in in um, children's ministry? Is it going to be in medical field? Is it going to be in service somehow? Uh, how, what, how am I going to go about sharing? And then you write a, a, a four to eight sentence summary of your response to these questions, kind of get it down, summarize it, and then take that and summarize it into a, into a mission statement. Um, your mission statement should be four to six sentences. It should be something that you can work on for the next 10 years and not really get it done. Um, it's not measurable or specific. It's not saying, I'm going to spend five years in missions. That's not, um, that's not a, a mission statement. A mission statement is, um, this is, uh, it, it's, 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 um, it, it's a bigger picture. It's not, it's not specific. That's goals. Goals are specific. A mission statement is more general. It's something you're going to, you could work on for your lifetime. It's the big idea. It's the grand vision that God gives you in His, um, in his upward call. Here is, um, here is my personal mission statement. My mission is to grow in the enjoyment of God, my respect for God, and my experience of His Lordship in my life. I desire to nurture and provide support for my wife and children. I will give confident leadership, utilizing both wisdom and compassion to those for whom God has given me responsibility. I will work diligently to make others successful and will freely use my gifts to do so. I will develop reserves of wisdom, spiritual strength, understanding, and love that will bless others and be useful to them. And so basically what I told that guy on the airplane is a, a summary of my mission statement. I want to live my life in a way that when my life is over, there are going to be other people who are in a better position in life and whose lives are better because of the way that I chose to live mine. So how do you get there then? from your mission statement. Well, you need to set goals, long-term goals. Long-term goals are usually one to five years. Um, we often overestimate what we can do in a week, and we underestimate what we can do in a year. Goals should be specific, they should be timed, and they should be measurable. So the big things in life are not going to happen between now and the end of March. The big things in life are things that you're going to have to work on maybe for a decade. Maybe you're going to have to work on them for five years or three years. And where many of you are at in life, you're getting to the end of high school. You're looking at, okay, this year or next year, I'm going to be finished with high school. Then what am I going to do? Well, look at the next two or three years out of high school. What are the things that, that God might want you to do? What, what are the, what is, what's the big picture of your life? What might God want to do with your life? And then what can you do in the next two or three years that will help to move you toward what you think the big idea is that God wants to do in your life and then set some goals of things that you could do in the next two or three years after you get out of high school. I, I believe that if we break our lives down into sec segments and we look at five-year segments 
of our lives, and we make plans based on this is what I'm going to do for this five-year period. I'm going to really work on this, and this is how I'm going to develop and grow and get ready for the next uh, period in my life. You see, sometimes uh, we're looking at the long term, and we'd like for God to give us the 25-year plan or the 30-year plan. We'd like for Him to tell us what's, if we're 20, we'd like Him to tell us what's going to happen, what we're going to be doing when we're 45 or 50. The problem is God doesn't often do that. Uh, As a matter of fact, He very seldom does that. You think about Saul on the road to Damascus. Uh, He was, uh, had a phenomenal life change coming. He was going from being Saul the persecutor to being the Apostle Paul, the great missionary. And there he is on the road to Damascus, and he asks two very important questions. The first question he asks is, who are you, Lord? And when he found out it was the Lord Jesus, he did an amazing thing. He did a 180-degree turn, went exactly the opposite direction. Rather than being a persecutor, he became a follower of Christ. The second question he asked Jesus was, what do you want me to do? Now, you would think with him being the Apostle Paul that, that Jesus would have said to him, well, I got a lot of things I want you to do. And you better buy some quills. I got a lot of writing for you to do. Get some parchments. You're going to have to write Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus, and Philemon, and maybe even Hebrews. And so you're going to, you're going to do a lot of writing and travel. Get some suitcases because you got ship voyages coming up. You're going to be on the road all the time. And I got a lot of stuff for you to do. God didn't say any of that. What did God say to Saul? He said, go to the city, and there it will be showing you what to do. He was already going to the city. That's what his plan was. God didn't give him anything new there. He just told him, go to the city and I'll show you there what to do. Sometimes you come to a place like Reach and you're saying, man, I hope I'm going to go to this thing on vision. I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And, and God's saying, uh, tomorrow morning, go back to school. And then I'll show you, you know, I'll show you something else there. And that's kind of what, that's kind of what God does. And then step by step. And you know what? When, when Saul got back to the city, Then God goes to Ananias, a more mature believer, and says, hey, Saul's over there. He's on straight street. He's my chosen vessel. He's going to speak to kings, and he's going to be persecuted. He's going to do all this stuff. God told Ananias more about what Saul was going to do than he told Saul. Sometimes God's going to show mature believers in your life more of a vision of what he wants to do with your life than he's going to show you directly. And so your relationship with more mature believers is very, very important because God may tell you through them what he wants you to do with the longer-term things in your life. So listen to them. Uh, Then short-term goals. You break it down, all right? What are you going to do in weekly or monthly goals? Uh, Create a worry list. You say, I don't need to create a worry list. I worry about a lot of stuff already. Uh, Well, it's good to, on a monthly basis, to sit down and, and think about, what are all the things I'm worried about? And you create a worry list, and then you go through your worry list, and you pray about the things on your worry list. If you can do something about it, you put it on a to-do list. If it's something you can't do anything about, then you commit it to God and you go out of there and you let God take care of the stuff that you can't do anything about and you take your to-do list and you get busy with the things that you can do something about. And that helps you to get things done and to make progress. And then out of your uh, to-do list, you create short-term goals and you uh, work on getting things uh, done. You invite, you evaluate your short-term goals and light of your long-term goals and your mission statement and begin to move forward. Avoiding distractions. We have the tyranny of the urgent. Not everything that seems to be urgent is important, and not everything that's important seems to be urgent. Sometimes we run around doing all the urgent things, and in doing all the urgent things, we miss the important. There's a great little booklet written by Charles Hummel, The Tyranny of the Urgent, and I encourage you, to, if you can get a hold of that, to read that booklet. We also have to re- recognize that not every need is a call for you personally. God didn't put you on the earth to solve every problem. 
there are some needs that are going to come up that are not yours to respond to. God has somebody else to do those things and discerning what God wants you to do. If you live by the urgent, you're not likely to accomplish the important things. And then stay focused. Uh, Don't be distracted by the success of others. Don't chase the latest sensational thing. Don't look for uh, what everybody else is doing, but follow the plan that the Lord has for you. Make a plan and then work your plan. Don't be distracted by opposition. Don't be distracted by success. Uh, You will have people that will compliment you. You will have people that will criticize you. You're never as bad as your critics say you are, but you're never as good as your fans say you are. And if you want to live on the praise of people who think you're good, you're in trouble because if you believe the people who, if you believe everything the people who like you say about you, then you also tend to believe everything the people who don't like you say about you. And somewhere in between is the truth. So don't get distracted by compliments. Don't get distracted by criticism. Take criticism, use it effectively in your life, and take compliments as encouragement for uh, how you can move toward more successful. Know why you were born. Why are you here? Uh, Know what what is it that you can do that no one else can do in the same way? What has God in mind for your life? Seek God's direction for a mission statement for your life. Set goals and pursue them. Be faithful in the little things and God will do the great things. I believe that many people in the past who we look at heroes of the faith and we look as great men and women, look to as great men and women of God, they did not set out to be heroes of the faith. They were men and women who were faithful. They got up every morning and they did the things that God gave them to do that day. And in the pursuit of faithfulness, they came to be great men and women of God. So I encourage you, don't pursue greatness Pursue faithfulness. And if God brings greatness into your life, that's something that is, um, that's a blessing. But don't pursue that. Pursue faithfulness. And I encourage you to think about things that are really important and really significant in life. Because in the end, we're all going to get to the end of life. And the things that we've done, it is only about 70 years. And then it's over. You think about where you're at. If you are 18 years old now, your life is 23% over. In another 18 years, you're going to be 50% done. <laughs> you think about that. Uh, you, you know, you think you're young, but if you're 18, almost a quarter of your life is already passed. And so you're, and then the last 10% of your life is, might not be too exciting either. So you're, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. So you have this slice in the middle and what you do with it is very, very important. And that comes by making choices every day. And sometimes it's hard to stay focused on what it is. I will admit to you that there are times in my life when I question, uh, am I doing what, am I, should I be doing what I'm doing? I would say to you that at the end of my life right now, where I'm at in life, I look back on my life and I say, I am so grateful for what God has given me the opportunities to do with my life. If you would have asked me when I was 25, or 20, what I was going to do with my life, I would have given you a whole different plan. I had no clue what uh, God was going to do with uh, my life. But step by step, in saying yes to God, God has allowed me to do some things that I, I'm, I'm so grateful for. And uh, I just encourage you to make your default answer to God yes. And when God brings you an opportunity, if you will say yes, you'll get to do some amazing things that now you would never be able to sit down and say, that's what I want to do. But God will walk you through open doors 
to do some pretty amazing and fascinating things in life. Sometimes there'll be opposition. Sometimes there'll be problems. There'll be discouragement. But don't get distracted by those things. My wife and I have been friends with a couple in northwestern Ontario for many years. They're a business couple in uh, northwestern Ontario, uh, a very wealthy couple. And um, they've been to our house for dinner. We've been to their house for dinner. And, and after my wife and I lived in Haiti, our family had lived in Haiti for a year. We came back from Haiti. And this couple said, why don't you come over to our cottage and uh, talk about Haiti? And so he said, all right, we'll do that. And he said, I'll meet you out by the Trans-Canada Highway because it's kind of hard to find my cottage. And it was good he did because it, it was. There were a lot of turns going back to his cottage. And my problem started when he met me by the Trans-Canada Highway because he was driving his Jaguar and I was driving my little escort station wagon, and so I'm following him. And thinking, I wonder what it's like to drive a Jaguar. Like that's pretty. You know, that's that's a real car, you know. And uh, and I wonder what he. Th- so I parked beside his Jaguar, and I'm looking in the window at the wood graining and the seats and everything. Thinking, I wonder what he thinks of my escort station wagon. I bet he thinks that's a joke of a car. And so then we went to their cottage, and their we had been to their house, but their cottage was bigger and nicer than my house. And I'm thinking, this is his cottage. Like, this is amazing. And then he said, you know, dinner's not quite ready yet, so we're going to go out sailing until dinner's ready. And so then he had, like, about a 40-foot sailboat, and we went out sailing on the lake. And I'm like, man, this guy, like, he's got it all. Like, he's got the Jaguar, the cottage, that sailboat. And so we're sailing around there. We came in. We sit down to dinner on the dock, and, and I have steak and baked potatoes. And then before we start eating, he's saying, no, after dinner, we're going to go up to the cottage and talk about Haiti. And, but we have a jacuzzi here on the dock, and if the children want to go in the jacuzzi while we go up for dinner, you know, they could, after dinner, they could do that. I'm thinking, Oh, yeah, it's a jacuzzi, too. Like, this is, like, this is really living. And, uh, and I started feeling sorry for myself. And I'll tell you, you know, my steak and potato didn't taste very good because I'm thinking, I should have stayed back in Pennsylvania. I should have gone into business. Maybe I had a boat at the shore and a cabin in the mountains and, and a, a decent car, and, and I don't have anything. I, and I have to go to somebody else's house to eat steak. And the way I'm living my life, I'm never going to have anything. I'm always going to be this way. It's never going to change. And... And this guy, he's got everything. And it's just, and I was feeling really sorry for myself. We went up to his cottage afterwards. We're talking about Haiti and talking about stuff we did there. And partway through that conversation, he turned to his wife and he said, you know what, Pat? We've made the wrong choices in life. We should have gotten more involved in the church. Because he said, we've never done anything for anybody. When we travel, we just go, we look at stuff and then we come home. But we've never done anything for anybody. He said, look at Marona's family and the things that they've done. And, and he was saying, we should have got more involved in the church. And you know, God spoke to me and said, you know what, you were crying into your steak and baked potato down there and feeling sorry for yourself. But if anybody ought to feel sorry for themselves, it's him. Because ultimately, the pursuit of those things, if I would get to the end of my life and all I'd have to show for 70 years of life would be a jaguar and a jacuzzi and a sailboat, that's not enough. That's, that's not worth trading a lifetime for. And uh, I don't want to get to the end of my life and just have accumulated a jaguar and a jacuzzi and a sailboat. That's not where it's at. And so invest your life in things that really matter. Seek the adventure that is true adventure and plan. Be intentional about living life because before you know it, it's going to be done. And then you have the memories of what God has given you the opportunity to do. And I just envy you young people. I wish I had another lifetime to live. You live in a fantastic time to be alive. There's no other generation that has ever had the opportunities that you have. When I was your age, I probably had a choice of four or five. I probably could count on one hand the mission agencies that I could have served with. Today, you have so many choices, it's almost confusing. You have resources. You have the ability, like Gary was talking about, you have transportation, communication abilities that no other generation has ever had. You can get the job done 
like no other generation has ever been able to do, but it's going to take focus. It's not going to happen with your spare change and your spare time. It's going to take focus and discipline and intentionality to be able to accomplish the things that I believe God wants to do with your generation, and I'm cheering for you, and I hope that God uses you in powerful ways and that 50 years from now, the world is a different place because of the way you chose to live your life, and it's in your hands. You can do with it what you want, but ultimately, it's going to make a difference for the world if you make wise choices and are intentional about living your life. May, may God bless you. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.